Well, I wanted to link this lecture to that wonderful romances exhibition that's on here in the Bodleian. And um, I don't have any visual aids for you or a handout. The visual aid, in a way, is the catalogue that goes with the exhibition, because a great many of the texts I want to talk about are actually represented there. Shakespeare comes in the last section of the catalogue, um, last but one, Romance in the Age of Print. After that, there's a more modern section too. But the Age of Print was an age that hugely boosted the profile of romance, not just because it set romance on its long trajectory towards the novel, but because it gave a new lease of life specifically to medieval romance, and print didn't just render that obsolete. Dozens of medieval romances were printed, often in very cheap versions, but that meant they could be far more widely disseminated than they ever had been in the Middle Ages itself, especially verse ones, though there were some prose ones too. The prose ones generally being larger and more expensive. And those verse romances constituted the pulp fiction of the Tudor age. They're represented in the current exhibition by Richard Coeur de Lyon, a chapbook of Guy of Warwick, chapbooks being the next step on from the actual printing of medieval texts in boiled down and even shorter versions. Roswell and Lillian, which is a medieval text, though we only know it from later prints. And also, rather wonderfully, by Edward Bannister's manuscript copies of four such printed romances, that is, he was copying out into manuscript from print, um, illustrations and all, and produced the most wonderful manuscript at the end of it. Those represent a tiny fraction of thousands of copies that were simply read to pieces. They were read all over the country and by a far wider range of the population than had ever been able to read, read them in manuscript. They were known, that is, to anyone who was within reach of someone who could read, or in other words, to anyone who could hear a romance being read. And like fairy tales now, they brought with them a sense of antiquity. Shakespeare's romance of the plays that we call his romances now, the one that's most famously based on a medieval original, Pericles, spells out that antiquity. Gower, who speaks the opening chorus, describes the story of be as being a song of old that hath been sung at festivals on ember eves and holy ales, and lords and ladies in their lives have read it for restoratives. That maps the history of romance reception rather well from their origin as entertainment for the aristocracy and the gentry down to fair or holiday or fireside reading from what we think of as being culturally sophisticated readers, gradually moving down to mass markets below the scholarly radar, the area of popular culture. But just once, Shakespeare himself actually gives us a quotation in the form of a slightly adapted couplet from one of the most popular of these romances, though it's one not actually represented in the exhibition, and that's Bevis of Southampton. The couplet in question describes how the hero survives for seven years in a dungeon without food. Rats and mice and such small deer was his meat that seven year. 
Bevis was first written in Anglo-Norman in the 13th century. It was first translated into English around 1300. And it was one of the most widely known of Middle English romances throughout the Middle Ages. And when the early printers in the generation after Caxton were looking for texts to print that would sell, always very important, Bevis was an obvious one to choose. So it was first printed around 1500, by which time as an English text, that is, it was already 200 years old. And reprints continued throughout the 16th century and indeed right down to the 18th. As some of you will have recognised already, that gets transported into Lear, into Tom o' Bedlam. Rats and mice and such small deer have been Tom's food for seven long year. That tells us not just that Shakespeare knew the text of Bevis, which is interesting enough, but amazingly, it also tells us something about the particular edition in which he knew it. For it appears in that form only down to prints as far as 1565, when Shakespeare was one year old. After that, deer, in its early Middle English sense of animals, small deer being those rats and mice, becomes cheer, it gets modernised, small cheer meaning poor fare. So in Bevis, we have a glimpse of the kind of story that could have helped form Shakespeare's imagination before he ever learned to read for himself, let alone learned Latin. And it's also a useful reminder of what we too often forget if we ever knew it in the first place, of how Shakespeare's most extensive and immediate cultural context lay not in the classics and other humanist texts painfully construed in school, but in the substructure of inherited English culture, the already there of the medieval, which everyone encountered in their lives every day, and in textual terms, what they were brought up on. For it was medieval romance that constituted both popular and childhood reading. Contemporary cultural commentators complained endlessly about the currency of these texts, and especially their use for bringing up children, which was held to be deeply inappropriate. Uh, whether the objections came from the humanist angle, because these texts weren't humanist enough, if at all, and mostly not at all, or from the Calvinist wing of the church, uh, on the grounds that um, everybody, and the young in particular, ought to be reading moral and devotional works, and in particular not texts written in the age of superstitious papistry. Abbey lubbers was the contemporary term. The number of those complaints is again evidence of the near universal familiarity of these romances, even while those fragile copies more fragile even than modern paperbacks, were disintegrating by the thousand. If they didn't simply disintegrate from overuse, they could be used for firelighters or as toilet paper as the bindings gave way completely. And metrical romances such as Bevis were at the very cheapest end of the market, at least until chapbooks came on stream. And Shakespeare leaves evidence of knowing several of them, apart from Bevis. Guy of Warwick, for instance, um, represented by a chapbook in the exhibition. Sir Eglamour there in Bannister's copying of it. The Squire of Low Degree. And it's a fairly safe bet, though it's necessarily hypothetical, that he knew more of them that he doesn't actually leave traces of, more than he alludes to. 
And his illusions, moreover, are often of the kind that shows that he expects his audiences to pick them up, to understand them. They often come in similes, for instance, like when he compares a combat in King Henry VI to one in Bevis. Or the bastard in King John contrasts his weakling brother with the giant Colbrand from Guy of Warwick. And illusions like that, indeed, aren't in there just to please the groundlings. As those commentators noted, everyone was familiar with them. And not the least interesting thing about his use of Bevis in King Lear is that Tom, who speaks that couplet, is not only a destitute lunatic, he's also, in actual fact, Edgar, the son of the Earl of Gloucester, and therefore an aristocrat. And so his knowledge of Bevis, if we want to be so literal-minded about the quotation at all, would be equally possible for both of them, the lunatic or the aristocrat. Shakespeare uses the couplet presumably partly because of that social duality, but also because it was evidently archaic, like the play. Like, the, like folk tales, it was recognisably old, and especially with that unmodernised small deer in there. In their material form, the antiquity of these texts was emphasised too by the fact that they were printed in black letter, in Gothic, as almost all English vernacular texts still were at this date. It's a print form much, much harder for us to read, but equally was much the most familiar to them. And Roman and Italic fonts, the modern ones, were used for different kinds of writings altogether, different kinds of publications. Tom's allusions encompass actual folk tales too. His fee-fi-fo-fum and child Roland to the Dark Tower came belong to stories that aren't even recorded in written form until much, much later. And those folk tales were told as we're repeatedly informed and could in any case confirm from experience that's changed very little over time. They were told by nurses or parents to their small children and therefore get embedded deep in the imagination. And the Stratford of his childhood was much the most likely place for Shakespeare to have grown up with such folk tales, or indeed with stories of Puck or the habits of fairies. But his use of that early edition of Bevis adds written stories to oral ones as helping to form his childhood imagination. It wasn't a book he came across in London in his adulthood. Indeed, given the date, it had quite possibly been handed down to his parents from a previous generation, or indeed from their own childhoods. Again, 1565 is the latest possible date, though plenty of dates before that it could be from. Now, we don't usually think of the Shakespeare household as owning books, even the cheap quartos such as contained these medieval romances. But they were distributed very widely over the whole country, even as peddlers' wares, uh, even more so once they got into chapbook form. And the Shakespeare household was just the kind of place that was likely to own them. There are some scholarly doubts, so I think they're misplaced, about whether John Shakespeare could write, John being Shakespeare's father, that is. But he could hardly have been the town bailiff as he was without at least reading, and writing even more then than now, is a very different technology from reading. It's like assuming, indeed, that 
um, anyone who can't touch type now is incapable of reading. And touch typing is a much simpler technology than writing. But we don't have to ha imagine the Shakespeare's as having a gentleman's type library, just a corner of a cupboard or the end of a shelf with some rather elderly tattered copies on it would be quite adequate. But Shakespeare's own reading in printed medieval romance went far beyond those much decried verse texts too. He knew a good number of others, including more substantial and more respectable texts. He got the story of the caskets, for instance, that he uses in The Merchant of Venice from the Gesta Romanorum, a 14th century in origin collection of exemplary stories, again printed in the 16th century. Oberon comes from Huon of Bordeaux, Lord Berner's 1530s translation of a medieval French prose romance. The Two Gentlemen of Verona suggests that he knows Valentine and Orson, as well as the altogether cheaper Sir Eglamour. Apollonius, which is the source for Pericles, Apollonius of Tyre, was available to him in various versions, but the major one he used was Gower's Confessio Amantis, again a 14th century original. Caxton's translation of the 15th century prose legendary history of Troy, which he called the Recurry of the Histories of Troy, was the main source for the war half of the Troy story in his Troilus and Cressida, uh, that's in the exhibition too. And Chapman's Homer is negligible as a source by comparison with Caxton. For the love half of Troilus and Cressida, um, he went to Chaucer, the only possible source. And the Canterbury Tales, most specifically its array of romances, absolutely saturates Midsummer Night's Dream. The Knight's Tale is established unequivocally in the opening 30 lines as the theme on which the rest of the play plays variations. And that may seem a bit obscure to us, but a different dramatization of the Knight's Tale had been acted in the same theatre only a few months before Shakespeare wrote the dream, and so it would have been immediately recognizable. The Merchant's Tale provides the model for the pair of gods come fairies paralleling the human characters and having their own marital squabble. And Sir Topaz is far and away the top precedent for a virtuoso display of bad writing so awful as to be pure genius. Um, complete, as is the play's Pyramus and Thisbe, with a fictional audience who don't see just how much of a genius work it is. And indeed, Chaucer's own version of Pyramus in The Legend of Good Women was one of Shakespeare's sources too. The Knight's Tale was also the immediate source for the two noble kinsmen. And indeed, The Knight's Tale was the most popular of all Chaucer's romances for dramatization in the late 16th century with several different versions. There was a positive rash of dramatizations of Chaucer after the publication of the big new 1598 edition. But Midsummer Night's Dream interestingly predates that. Shakespeare was working with an edition at the latest again, of 1561, possibly earlier. That pattern of his use of early editions of medieval printed texts extends across much of the canon of his writing, even when later texts could have been available to him. The last printing of Gower was in the 1550s, so he couldn't have used anything later for that. 
But the verbal detail in Troilus and Cressida proves that he was working not with um, the new 1590s edition of Caxton's Recurry of the History of Troy, but again with one printed at the latest in the 1550s. The Gesta Romanorum, again, he was almost certainly using a text of that date. Did the Shakespeare's own those too? Even the huge, expensive folio Chaucer? Well, I wouldn't want to rule it out, but we don't have to hypothesize that. There were plenty of other places around Stratford where he could have had access to such things, even before he moved to London. Some of his Arden relations, for instance, were pretty wealthy, gentry level. They could easily have owned such things. Or within the town, perhaps in a household such as the Fields. They're interesting because um, their son, Richard, attended Stratford Grammar School alongside Shakespeare, or at least we don't have um, the records for who went there, but um, presumably both of them did, Richard Field and Shakespeare. And Richard was sufficiently book-crazy for his parents to apprentice him to a London stationer, a printer, in other words. And unless uh, he'd become book-crazy and was demanding it, it's hard to see why his parents would have done that. And it's hard to see why he should have become so book-crazy unless there'd been the books there for him to get so interested in. Richard Field, in due course, made good by marrying his master's widow, and he was the printer that Shakespeare turned to to print Venus and Adonis. And he wasn't just a jobbing printer either. Among his outputs was a Greek text of Hesiod, one of the very, very few Greek works to be printed in England at all. Most of them were imported. So we can hypothesize a young Shakespeare growing up with medieval romance as an infant, perhaps, lying in bed, peeping over his protective blanket, tucked up round the shoulders to stop the goblins from getting in underneath. Haven't we all done that? And listening to stories of goblins, or being read to from that Warwickshire favourite guy of Warwick, or from Bevis, and those scary rhymes lodging themselves in his mind, as rhymes do so very easily. Rats and mice and such small deer was his meat that seven year. When he was bigger, perhaps, settling in a corner of the field's house with a Chaucer or a Gower. Reading that shaped his imagination far more deeply than the Latin texts he read at school. His use of Virgil, or even Ovid, is far more ornamental than the kinds of deep allusions to romance that you find in his works. And indeed, the fact that they are ornamental, that they're on the surface, makes them much more accessible to scholarly annotation in modern editions of, of his works, as his medieval references are often not. You can print entire editions, many people have, of Midsummer Night's Dream without ever noticing the importance of Chaucer and underlying it. Um, the classics, by contrast, were most often used for display. There are obvious major exceptions to that, not least the Roman plays with their sourcing in Plutarch. But it's very easy to overlook how many of Shakespeare's plays were sourced from within the Middle Ages, especially outside history plays, which are obvious, especially from the more imaginative or legendary end of medieval writing. That is where it came closest to romance, even though, strictly speaking, it may not take that form. And even if those medieval sources came to him through intermediaries. 
As You Like It, for instance, again there in the exhibition in its folio text, has one of the tales apocryphally ascribed to Chaucer as its grandparent. The 14th century Gamelin, which survived in the 16th century only in manuscript, not it was never printed. Um, it survives only indeed in a handful of manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales, where it's added in as an extra cook's tale. And Thomas Lodge picked it up from there as the source of half of the plot of Euphue's Golden Legacy, his Rosalind, which was Shakespeare's own source for As You Like It. And it's not just the comedies that have texts of this kind in their background. Many of the tragedies, too, have, their, have medieval origins at this legendary romance kind of end. Hamlet, who, first get, who gets his first recorded mention in the Norse poetic Edda, and his narrative was first told in full by Saxo Grammaticus in the late 12th century in a text, again, that was still in print in the 16th century. Or Lear, a story invented by Geoffrey of Monmouth a generation or so before Saxo was writing about Hamlet. And both of those are stories that carry very strong elements of the folk tales such as fed romance. Hamlet is a story of the dispossessed prince who pretends to be mad, who in the early versions is very, very much a trickster figure in order to outwit the villain. Lear is the father who imposes a love test on his three daughters, a folktale that's still there in Grimm's collection. And of course, it's the youngest and most virtuous, who in all the versions previous to Shakespeare's brings about the happy ending. It's Shakespeare who first turns it into a tragedy. And it's Lear too, of course, if I've, as I've said, that finds space for Bevis and those folk tales and the prophecy of Merlin's prophecies. Macbeth too. The main source for the story of Macbeth comes from Hollinshed's Chronicles, which is also where Shakespeare got his English histories from. And Shakespeare may have chosen Scottish history in honor of the new or newish King James. But of all Scottish history available to him, he picks out the story of a man seduced by a trio of fairies, creatures of an elder world, into seizing the crown. The witches being too much of a 17th century obsession to have appeared in the original, or indeed probably in Shakespeare's own texts. Text He calls them just the weird sisters. The witches come in with the additions that are widely ascribed now to Middleton. And Hollinshed, also mediated the underlying story of Cymbeline from Geoffrey of Monmouth, a play that marries a semi-legendary British king to a med the medieval story of the falsely accused wife. And falsely accused women were something of a staple in particular of English romance, represented in the exhibition by a particularly beautiful early 16th century manuscript of the Earl of Toulouse. It's a motif that Shakespeare, in fact, used five times, including The Winter's Tale as well as Cymbeline. And it's worth mentioning, too, that Middle English romance was particularly good at feisty heroines who decide whom they want to marry and pursue him. You can simply forget the courtly lady model for Middle English romance. But The Winter's Tale as well as Cymbeline bring us to the question of those works of Shakespeare's that we actually now call romances, um, the last plays. 
And those in turn raise the whole question of romance as a genre, as a way of thinking about the world. And that we've come to think of as marking the end of Shakespeare's career. This is where he finishes up with that kind of romance vision. In fact, almost all of Shakespeare's comedies, whatever their source, have much more generically of medieval romance about them than they do of the contemporary theoretical or humanist definitions of comedy. For comedy was a classical term defined as presenting and ridiculing the middle or lower classes and written in prose. Shakespeare's comedies, with just very few exceptions, follow much more of a romance definition of stories of aristocrats falling in love and finishing up by getting married. The intermixed lower class characters may speak in prose, but the aristocrats largely speak blank verse. And that gives us the thoroughly counterintuitive result that the comic or funny elements in the comedies that, for criti that critics have for long regarded as there to please those notorious groundlings again could equally have been inserted as a sop to the humanists. That's something to think about. The element of comedy in the sense of funniness in the comedies is in any case very variable. Many comedies are stalked by death. Tragedy is often a very real possibility. Many think Twelfth Night or Much Ado or All's Well include the return of characters who have thought, been thought to be, be dead. Something again characteristic of romance, much more than comedy. Resurrection is almost one of the hallmarks of romance. And Apollonius of Tyre, the source for Pericles, is, and Pericles is there in the exhibition too, incidentally. Um, Apollonius is one of the oldest examples of both romance and resurrection, and the two going together. Romance was traditionally a narrative form, not dramatic, and it was never used as a term to describe plays in Shakespeare's lifetime. But it very often gives a better sense of what's going on in his works than comedy does or for the last plays, the term that they invented to use themselves or imported from Italian, tragic comedies. Elizabethan comedies relentlessly, sorry, Elizabethan commentators relentlessly decried comedies for the public stage that followed romance conventions because they disobeyed the rules not only of social level and poetic style, but they blamed them for their expansiveness of time and space and for their sheer implausibility, very much features of romance. And if Shakespeare's own late romances are even more quintessentially romanced than his earlier comedies are, it lies in his relentless pushing of the boundaries further beyond what humanist comedy would conceivably encompass. He provides us with plays that cover two generations, or Sicily and Bohemia, or that feature on stage bears or shipwrecks. Or where the characters not only go through near-death experiences or are believed dead by the other characters, but at least once in the case of Hermione, are believed to be dead even by the audience. And that just for that reason, because they operate within the imagination, not within the rational confines of the classical or humanist unities or prescriptions, or even indeed in terms of the more realistic, naturalistic parameters of the later novel, 
they can exercise a hold that more plausible narratives don't. A sense like folktales at some level of the already known, something existing from deep within our earliest experience of story, or even just of the incantatory power of words, rats and mice and such small deer was his meat that seven year. Thank you.